Let's jump into the message. We live in interesting times, yes? Yes. We are in, in multiple ways, multiple avenues. I think one of the really interesting things about the days that we live in that make it um, unique to our generation um, is, is this abundance of weakly formed opinions that are strongly held. Um, I, I don't know if you've noticed this or not, but everybody seems to have an opinion about everything. Um, education, politics, religion, vaccines, masks, you know, uh, should Oklahoma and Texas go to the SEC, right? There's all kinds of things that we have uh, opinions about. And sometimes when you drill down on some of those opinions, I don't know if you've experienced this or not, but you drill down on some of the opinions and you, you, you find out that they're not very, they're not built on anything strong. Like they saw a meme on Facebook and that's where they built their worldview around it, right? It just doesn't make any sense. So part of what I wanted to do in this series is, is look at what Jesus has to say about the end of the world. There are a lot of people, Christians included, that have very weakly formed opinions around the end of the world. And I want us to look at, I want us to pay attention to what Jesus says about this. I want us to pay attention to the conversations that are happening around us so we can, as followers of Jesus, walk into some of those conversations with firmly held beliefs that bring hope to some of those conversations. So that's what, that's what I want us to do. It's where we started last week, that this idea that um, if we could fix it as human beings, why hasn't it been fixed yet? Why haven't you fixed it yet? Why haven't we collectively fixed it yet? Uh, the question I want us to ask today is, um, how will the world end and where is God in the midst of it? How's the world going to end and where is God in the midst of it? People are asking this question. Not just Jesus followers, not just Christians, scientists are asking this question. Politicians are asking this question. Sociologists are asking this question. There's a lot of people asking, maybe you're wondering about this question. There's a lot of people asking this question, and there are a lot of opinions about how the world will end. In fact, there's been many opinions just in our lifetime alone. So I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to kind of take a, take a step back in time a little bit and, and look at some of these. That And if you're 20, 25, you might not know these. Ask your parents at lunch today. They'll tell you all about it, okay? Um, so how, how will the world end? Well, here's some opinions. The first one, some of you will remember this, Y2K. Remember Y2K? Yeah. That was, there was some apocalyptic energy behind Y2K. Um, Y2K, for those of you who don't know, it was, it was, it was around the year 2000. There, it was all based on this idea that when computers were, were created, the date only had two digits. So it was 84, it was 88, it was 92, it was 96, right? And they thought, okay, whenever it rolls over to the year 2000, um, our computer system's going to work. Are we going to be able to buy and sell goods? Are we going to be able to get to our, our, our bank, you know, our, all of that stuff? Are, are we going to, is it it's our energy? What's going to happen with that? And there was all of this energy around what's going to happen at Y2K. Do you know how much money we spent to try and solve Y2K before Y2K happened? A hundred billion dollars. <laughs> and what happened January 1st at midnight, 2000? <laughs> Nothing. It was the sound of a hundred billion dollars being flushed down the toilet right? Um, somebody who was here first service came to me after, uh, in between services, and they gave me this. This is the Y2K preparedness kit. It says, you've got to be kidding, right? Here's the kit. 
A heating system, a home security system, a computer, an alarm clock, a hairdryer, electric razor backup, entertainment system, list of suggested reading, January snow stick, reality check, earplugs, and a savings coupon for the Y3K kit. That's about how Y2K went, right? But there was a lot of people. There's a lot of people who believe that, that Y2K could possibly be the end of the world. Here's another one, and this one isn't as much as more of a blip on the screen. Uh, but you remember the Mayan calendar? Yeah. Okay, 2012. It was authored thousands of years ago, but for some reason it ended December 21st, 2012. And, and, and whether you know this or not, there, there was some, again, there was some energy around this, mainly because of social media. But people quit their jobs. Um, they, they stockpiled food. They changed their life plans because they thought the world was going to end December 21st, 2012. And guess what? It didn't end, right? Here's another one. Some of you may recognize this. Many of you won't. There's a preacher, a theologian by the name of Harold Camping who came out um, May 21st, 2011, if you remember this story. The reason that this got um, national attention, especially in the United States, is because Harold Camping rented thousands of billboards all over the United States with this date on it and his website. And, and, and May you know, 21st, 2011 came and went. People hid in their basements. They quit their jobs, stockpiled food, came and went. And Camping said, oh, I, I miscalculated. It's actually October 21st, 2011 right? He miscalculated all the biblical prophecy that he was looking at, but it doesn't stop there because Harold Camping actually wrote a book called 1994. That was his first prediction of the end of the world. Now, there's a lot of people who have done this over and over and over. You may have grown up in a religious tradition that talked a lot about that, uh, maybe you grew up in a religious tradition that never talked about this, and you're really freaked out right now that you're in a church talking about this, okay? But here's my advice. If, if you consider me your pastor, here's my advice. Do not believe anybody who claims to know when the world will end. Don't give them money. Don't sign up for their newsletter. Don't buy their book. Don't believe it, because they're not ever right. They have been 100% of the time wrong. And here's why I say that. I say that because of what Jesus said, Matthew 24, 36. He's talking to his disciples about the end of the world. And here's what Jesus says. No one knows the day or the hour when these things will happen. You don't need to go to the original Greek to know what that's talking about right there. No one means no one. No one knows, not even the angels, or catch this, or the Son himself. If Jesus doesn't even know when the day or the hour is going to happen, what makes you think anybody else does? Only the Father knows. Only the Father knows when this is going to happen. Anybody else who says they know is lying, misguided, or just plain crazy. Because every single one of them have been wrong 100% of the time. Jesus said we can't know. He doesn't know. So if, if nobody knows when... What about how? How is it going to end? Lots of opinions, lots of ideas around that. Is it an asteroid? Um, is it climate change? Is it nuclear war? Um, is it a superbug pandemic or engineered disease? If I would have said that five years ago, you'd be like, that's crazy. And here we are, right? 
Is it, um, is it overpopulation? Is it going to be artificial intelligence and artificial intelligence takes over and we become the subspecies? You say, that's crazy. There are really smart people talking about that right now. So how? How is the world going to end? Again, some of us want to bury our head in our work, our family, go about our life and ignore this stuff because if I don't think about it, it's not real. And I get that. I'm a little bit like that too. But, but, but our world is thinking about this, is talking about it, and Jesus has something to say. And so I think as Jesus followers, we should pay attention We should pay attention to the conversations that our world is having. We should pay attention to the conversations our neighbors and our coworkers and our family members are having. And we should bring the hope that Jesus gives us into those conversations. And so I want us to know what Jesus has to say about some of these things. So we're going to look at two passages today, all right? If you have a Bible or a mobile device, we're going to start in Matthew 24, um, and then we're going to get to a passage in Revelation. Matthew 24 is actually from the last week of Jesus's life. It's a conversation he has with his disciples um, about the end of the world. Um, Jesus was a real Jewish man who, who, who had Jewish followers as his closest followers, and one day they're walking through the temple grounds, the, the temple in Jerusalem, one of the um, seven ancient wonders of the world. It was where Jews worshiped, where they believed the spirit of God dwelt. So this was a big deal to ancient Jews, okay? So that's kind of the setting of what happens in, in Matthew 24. Here we go. Matthew 24, starting in verse one. As Jesus was leaving the temple grounds, his disciples pointed out to him the various temple buildings, But he responded, Jesus responded, do you see all these buildings? I tell you the truth, they will be completely demolished. Not one stone will be left on top of another. And this this would have sounded so crazy to his disciples. It would have sounded sacrilegious. It would have been offensive to people who didn't know what Jesus was talking about. Because the temple, this this is God's house. This is where our God dwells. That's no way that's gonna happen. 70 AD, Rome marches into Jerusalem, ransack the city, completely demolish the temple. Not one stone was left on top of another. (laughs) What Jesus said would happen, happened. And it happened in some of their lifetime. Goes on, verse three, later, Jesus sat on the Mount of Olives. His disciples came to him privately and said, tell us, when will all this happen? What sign will signal your return and the end of the world? They're asking when, they're asking how. People have been asking this for thousands of years. How is this gonna happen? When is it gonna happen? Jesus told them, don't let anyone mislead you. For many will come in my name claiming I am the Messiah. They will deceive many in the same way that Jesus said nobody could know the hour. He says, If you hear anybody else saying, I'm the Messiah, don't believe them. Because you're going to know. When I I come back, when I show up, you'll know. And again, what Jesus said was going to happen has happened. Watch televangelists. Watch, there's crazy people who have claimed to be the Messiah for the last 2,000 years. So far, 100% of them have been wrong. What Jesus said would happen has happened, and then he starts to answer their question about the signs that will signal his return. He says, and you will hear of wars and threats of wars, but don't panic. 
You should underline. Some of you should memorize this verse. But don't panic. Yes, these things must take place. But the end won't follow immediately. Nation will go to war against nation, kingdom against kingdom. There will be famines and earthquakes in many parts of the world. But all of this is only the first of the birth pains with more to come. We don't like these verses. We don't like reading this because we, we love our comfort. Can we just say that? We love our comfort. We love our comfortable house with our comfortable socks and our comfortable shoes with the AC set to a comfort, comfortable temperature. And, and, and don't talk to me about all of this bad stuff that's going to happen, Tim. I don't want to hear it. But just take a step back and, and look at the broad scope of human history. Isn't it true? For most of human history, discomfort outweighs comfort. It, it does. There is way more discomfort. We talked about this last week. There's way more pain. There's, there, there's way more suffering than there is comfort. And Jesus is just pointing out, hey, when the end comes, it's, it's going to ramp up. It's going to be. These things have to take place in order for the end to come. If that doesn't cheer you up, then you will be arrested, persecuted, and killed. You will be hated all over the world because you are my followers. Who wants to sign up for that? Now, this doesn't mean that you're a jerk on social media. This doesn't mean that people at work don't like you because you're hard to get along with. What Jesus is talking about is what is happening all over the world right now to our brothers and sisters in Christ in China, Indonesia, India, Africa. This is not, these verses are not America-centric. They're big K Jesus kingdom-centric. And Jesus' kingdom reaches all around this world and in this hour, there are men and women and children all over the world who are being arrested, persecuted, and killed because of their faith in Jesus. And is that moment going to come to America? I am not going to predict that. I don't know. I have no idea. But once again, what Jesus said would happen has happened. It's happening. And if you're looking for what we might have, or what might be concentric about America, maybe these next few verses might be it. Many will turn away from me and betray and hate each other. Many false prophets will appear and will deceive many people. Sin will be rampant everywhere, and the love of many will grow cold. But the one who endures to the end will be saved. And the good news about the kingdom will be preached throughout the whole world so that all nations will hear it, and then the end will come. We could talk about that for months. Skip down to verse 29. Immediately after the anguish of those days, the sun will be darkened, the moon will give no light. Is that literal or metaphorical? Yes. <laughs> That's what I'll say. Okay? The moon will give no light, the stars will fall from the sky, the powers in the heavens will be shaken, and then at last the sign that the Son of Man is coming will appear in the heavens. You'll know. You'll know when it's Jesus. You won't be like, is that a bird? Is that a plane? Is that super? No, that's Jesus. You'll know. You'll know. And then watch what happens. And there will be deep mourning among all the peoples of the earth. That doesn't mean that everybody in the earth will be in deep mourning. That just means in all people groups throughout the earth, there will be mourning. And you guys say, why? I mean, Jesus coming back should be a good thing, right? 
Why is there deep mourning? Here's, here's my, this is just my opinion. I, I think it's because our little theories about life and death and eternity will be proven true or false in that moment. And right now, you can believe whatever you want. You can live however you want. You can treat other people however you want. You can spend your money however you want. You can travel wherever you want. And if all of your energy, if all of your resources, if all your priorities in life are spent around you, when Jesus comes back and you realize, oh, it's not about me, it's actually about him, there's going to be a lot of deep mourning because in that moment, if all you live for is yourself, all you will have to show for yourself in that moment is yourself. And that, that will cause deep mourning around the whole earth. And, and, and again, so far, some of the stuff that Jesus has said would happen has happened. And I just think we would be wise to conform our lives around him instead of asking him to conform his life around us. And use our energy, use our priorities, use our resources, our time, all of that to make sure life is about him, not us. And they will see, they will see the rest of verse 30, and they will see the Son of Man coming on the clouds of heaven with power and great glory. And he will send out his angels with a mighty blast of a trumpet, and they will gather his chosen ones from all over the world, from the farthest ends of the earth and heaven. So this, this is where, um, you know, some of you might have grown up in a religious environment that always talked about this or never talked about this. Maybe they talked about it in academic terms, but this is where millennialism comes in, okay? And this is not millennialism like, how do I get my 30-year-old out of my basement millennialism? <laughs> this is, you know, pre-millennialism, post-millennialism, millennialism tribulation, pre-tribulation, post-tribulation, all that stuff. That's, that means something to some of you. Some of you means nothing. Some of you are having flashbacks to church when you're a kid. But this is where people go, okay, I'm going to show you how this is all going to play out. Jesus comes back here, but before he comes back, there's a thousand-year reign, and then there's the final judgment. And then somebody else comes along, no, that's not how it's going to work. The thousand-year reign is actually, it's not literal, it's a metaphorical, and then the judgment comes. And there's all kinds of, their theories, right? Which in my opinion, again, it's my opinion, I think we start to get off track because we focus on the how. The how is why books like 1994 are written. The how is why people rent billboards all over the United States. The how is why people stockpile food because that's the day. The how, I, it, it's, I just think it's the wrong way. I think there's a better way. And so this is kind of what I've tried to do my entire life. When it comes to the end of the world, don't focus on the how. People ask me, Tim, your pastor, you should know this. How is all that going to happen? My answer, my answer is, and I know it's a little sarcastic, but my answer is I'm on the welcoming committee, not the planning committee. <laughs> right? Like I'm just here to welcome. Whenever Jesus comes back, I'm good. I'm good. I don't need to be on the planning committee. I don't need to know all the ins and outs. And if Jesus wanted us to be clear about that, don't you think he would have been clear about it? 
It's almost like he was sufficiently vague as if to say, don't focus on the how. Focus on the who and the why. This is my encouragement to you, church. Focus on the who. We can't know how all of this is going to happen in the future with 100% certainty, but you can know the who and the why with 100% certainty. Jesus is crystal clear on that. I can't, I, I don't know how all these things are going to play out or if they're playing out in our lifetime right now. I don't know if we're going to see the end of a world in our lifetime or if it's going to be 20 lifetimes from now, but I do know this. You can know Jesus, and that is infinitely more important than knowing the ins and outs of the end of the world. We can know the who, and we can know the why. That's kind of where the book of Revelation comes into play, okay? Revelation is a letter that records a sequence of apocalyptic events, but when you get to the end of the end of the end, the very end of the letter, Jesus, I think Jesus says, let me show you the why. And let me show you why you should focus on the why of the end of the world instead of the how. I want to show you where this ultimately ends after the heartache, after all the, the discomfort, the mourning, all of that stuff. And here's, here's how I'm going to, su I'll summarize it first and then we'll look at it, okay? Here's how I'll summarize it. The end of the world hinges on a choice and Jesus invites us to choose him. Because here, hear me, it's not just the end of the world, it's the end of your world. And for some of us, maybe for the majority of us, the end of our world is going to happen before the end of the world. And Jesus invites us. He invites us to choose him. That's the hinge point of the end of the world and the end of your world. And I know <laughs> we don't really like thinking about this. We don't like thinking about death. We don't like thinking about what's after. And in my experience... The reason we don't is because we think this world is better than the next. And I just want to show you how much of a lie that is. So Revelation 22, okay? Started in Genesis 3 last week, the moment in history when everything went wrong. Revelation 22 is where everything is made right again. It's a glorious moment. This comes from a, a vision from a guy named John. He was one of Jesus's original um, followers. Um, most people, some, some theologians believe that John started following Jesus when he was a teenager, and now he's in his 90s. And what Jesus said would happen to some of them has happened to him. He was arrested. He, some of the people that he pastored have been killed because of their faith. They didn't kill John. They exiled him to an island in Patmos. And while he was there, he had a vision of what the new heaven and the new earth would be. Jesus showed up and showed him. He, he revealed to him what it would look like. And so we're picking it up. Chapter 22, starting in verse one. It says, Then the angel showed me a river with the water of life, clear as crystal, flowing from the throne of God and of the Lamb. You heard Pastor Mark a couple weeks ago teach you a new song. And he talked about how God and the Lamb are interchangeable. They're one and the same. There's multiple places in Scripture that show us how Jesus is in fact God. But at the end of all things, God and the lamb are one and the same. This is one of the ways of showing that Jesus is in fact God. It flowed down the center of the main street. On each side of the river grew a tree of life. We saw that last week in Genesis. It's interesting. It was in Genesis 3. Here it is in Revelation 22. 
bearing 12 crops of fruit with a fresh crop each month. The leaves were used for medicine to heal the nations. I love this. When Adam and Eve sinned because they ate the fruit, it created a sickness in all of human beings, all of humanity. Revelation 22, there's leaves from the tree of life that heal it all. That's a better world than the world we have. It's a better world. All the pain, all the disappointment, all the suffering in life is fully realized in Genesis 22. I love what what David Crowder says, earth has no sorrows that heaven can't heal. Verse 3, no longer will there be a curse upon anything. Right after Adam and Eve ate the fruit, they're cursed, right? And in our life, many, in many ways, we are still affected by that curse. You have all these things you want to do, all these things you want to be, all these things you want to accomplish, all these relationships that you want to be right, and it just, you just can't quite get there. That's the curse. And here in Revelation 22, all that is gone. The curse has been lifted. For the throne of God and of the Lamb will be there, and his servants will worship him. Let me read that again. For the throne of God and of the Lamb will be there, and his servants will worship him. This is the culmination of all of Scripture. It's the culmination of the entire story. See, because God dwelled with Adam and Eve in the garden, right? He walked with them and talked with them in the cool of the day. God was with Adam and Eve. And then when the nation of Israel comes away from Egypt, there's the tabernacle, which is where God dwelt with them, dwelt with Moses. And then you have the temple in Jerusalem, which is where they believe God's presence dwelt. And then Jesus comes and John says in the first chapter of his gospel, Jesus moved into the neighborhood and dwelt with us. And then Paul picks it up. And Paul says, actually, no, your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit. God, you are one in whom the Spirit of God dwells. And then in Revelation 22, God dwells, the word is actually tabernacles. He tabernacles with his people. He dwells with his people and his people dwell or tabernacle with him. It's all about relationship from beginning to end. It's all about God wanting to be with his people from beginning to end. And they will see his face. You'll see his face. His name will be written on their foreheads. That's a reversal of the mark of the beast, if you want to study that kind of thing. There will be no night there, no need for lamps or sun. Think about all the things that happen at night that don't happen during the day. For the Lord God will shine on them and they will reign forever and ever. And then the angel said to me, everything you have heard and seen is trustworthy and true. I think Jesus said that to him because he was going to wake up from this vision and wonder, was that just a dream? And he'll be able to go back to that moment. Everything you've seen is trustworthy. It's true. It's going to happen. And then this is Jesus speaking in verse 12. Look. I am coming soon, bringing my reward with me to repay all people according to their deeds. I am the Alpha and the Omega. That's the first and last letter in the Greek alphabet. The first and the last, the beginning and the end. Again, you go back to Exodus 3. Moses sees God in the burning bush for the first time, and God says, you're going to go to Pharaoh. And Moses says, what am I supposed to say? Who are you? God says, I am. Jesus shows up. 
He says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. He has all of these I am sayings. And now at the end of all things, Jesus says, I am. The beginning, the end, and everything in between. It was always about me. From the beginning of all things to the end of all things, it was always about me. And I know some of you say, Tim, that seems so selfish. That seems so narrow-minded. It seems so authoritarian. It's all about him. is, Is Jesus just on some kind of celestial power trip? No. Look at verse 17. The spirit and the bride say, come. Let anyone who hears this say, come. Let anyone who's thirsty, come. Let anyone who desires drink freely from the water of life. Can I just ask you, are you thirsty? You discouraged? You confused? You're tired of chasing after things that don't ever really satisfy. Like you get what you think you need and it doesn't satisfy. Jesus says, you're invited. Come, come drink freely from the water of life. You're trying to drink from all these other things that you think produces life. No, come, come drink from me. Do do, do you want to experience something that satisfies eternally? Come, you're invited. And to those who say, it just seems narrow-minded and authoritarian, I just, I want to reframe this. Look at the invitation that Jesus offers to you. Here's the invitation. Everybody's invited. Everybody gets in the same way. And the price for admission's actually already been paid. <laughs> Everybody's in, invited. What's narrow-minded about that? Doesn't matter where you come from, what you've done. Everybody's invited. Everybody gets in the same way. There's not an American way and an African way and a European way or a first century way and a seventh century way and a 21st century way. No. Everybody gets in through the door called Jesus. And the best part, the best part of it all is the price for admission has already been paid. Your ticket is waiting at will call. It's been set aside for you. It's already been paid. Jesus isn't only the door, he's the ticket. He paid the price that you could never repay. He provided a fix for the thing that you can't fix. He's provided a fix for the thing that we collectively can't fix. And my question is really simple today. It's really simple. (laughs) What have you done with Jesus? What have you done with Jesus? That's, That's the question. That's the issue that all of human history and all of your history hinges on. What have you done with Jesus? And what, if anything, is holding you back from accepting the invitation that Jesus has extended to you? Because everybody's invited. Everybody gets in the same way. The price for admission is, it's already been paid because the end of the world, the end of your world hinges on a choice. And it's a choice that you can make right now. It's a choice. What do you do with Jesus? And and if you've never made that choice, if you've never been presented with that choice, you don't know. I just want to give you an opportunity to choose him today. That's an invitation you've never accepted. If you want to mark this moment in history as the moment you accept that invitation, I'm going to invite you to pray a prayer here in a minute. The prayer doesn't save you. There's no magic words. 
Jesus is what saves you. The prayer is a relational, a relational conversation you have with him to say, Jesus, I, I want to choose you because I know the end of the world is eventually going to end, but I know my world is eventually going to end. What have you done with Jesus? What have you done with Jesus? Father in heaven, this is a lot of information <laughs> for us to consider. God, there's so much in information outside of this place. It's, it's confusing. Lots of voices, lots of opinions screaming for our attention. But in this moment, we simply want to focus on this truth that at some point our world will end. And, and I can't thank you enough for loving us enough to give us a heads up on it, to show us the way to you, to give us a sense of hope and security in a world that seems to be falling apart. And for those who don't have the hope, they don't have security, they're thirsty. And they've realized today that they need to make the choice that changes everything. And if that's you, you can simply pray something like this. Lord Jesus, I felt the longing in my heart today. And I know, I know that what I've chosen so far isn't working. So today I choose you. Got lots of questions about that. Got lots of doubts about that. But today... I put my confidence, my trust, my faith in you. I admit I can't fix me. I admit that I'm a sinner who needs a savior and I need you to forgive me. I need to accept the invitation you've extended to me. I want you to be my forgiver, my healer, my restorer, and my forever king. And Lord, for those of us who we've, we've already known you, we, we want our life to count for something beyond ourselves. And so in this moment, we choose you. We choose to trust you, not ourselves, not our ability to figure it out, our ability to know when and how these things are gonna take place. We choose to trust in who has already figured it out. But I thank you for the invitation to the thirsty, the weary, the tired, the confused. For those of us who want the love we vaguely remember from Eden and find it in you. And God, I pray as we sing these words that those, those who have prayed that prayer for the first time would hear our encouragement, our collective encouragement. As we sing these words about who you are, about what you've done and about what you've invited them to. Your arms are open wide. And so we're gonna run to you. We ask this, we pray all this in Jesus' name, amen.